0: It's, uh, it's good to have you tonight. Um, we are in the book of Acts. You guys know that, those who are here on Sunday nights. And I, I saw this, I saw today, it's, it's the 20th lesson. And I used to be sitting in church and I used to say, why do these preachers like preach like 40 sermons on one topic or one book? And now I'm stuck in that as well. And I really, you guys know, I'm not dragging out the verses. You know that, right? But we're in chapter 9. And this is the 20th lesson we are, um, oh my goodness, it's actually not chapter 9, I'm sorry, it's chapter 8. Sorry, just those of you who got your Bibles there, that's just a typo. We are in chapter 8, and we're going to be dealing with verse 5 to, to 25 um, then for tonight. Just to bring everybody up to speed, the book of Acts is incredible. We are part of this journey, we are in Acts chapter 29. Um, As we live out our Christian lives, as the church develops and and grows, the book starts off and, and the primary theme that I see so far is that this power, power that Jesus promised, power that the apostles experienced, power that these new believers experienced, that's the dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. The Holy Spirit is doing work. The Holy Spirit is spreading the message in the streets of Jerusalem first and then in the temple courts we see the gospel being preached when Peter and John heals the, the man that was born lame sitting at the gate, right? And then God opens the door through that. And so the, the message escalates. It starts in the streets, goes to the temple courts, and eventually the gospel message is preached in front of the Sanhedrin, all through the power of the um, Holy Spirit. But we see also an underlying current take place. We see the, that there's an enemy lurking behind the scenes trying to stop the message. The book of Acts is all about the message, ladies and gentlemen. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's penetrating the world as Jesus is establishing his kingdom. And where the message spread, the kingdom takes shape and it expands and it grows. Um, there's this enemy behind the scenes. There's forces of evil, the forces of darkness, Satan, whatever you want to call it. And this, there's, there's these forces that's trying to block the message. We see it Everywhere. And so the spirit is working towards spreading the message, but there's an evil spirit trying to block the message. And so the the guys spreading the message, they get beaten. And if they don't get beaten, they get thrown into prison. And if they don't get thrown into prison, what happens? And that's what we looked at last week. Somebody eventually gets killed. But even before that, we see that Satan tries to penetrate the church because maybe, maybe a, a way to destroy this movement is to start from inside. And so he works in Ananias and Sapphira, and deception comes into the church, but boom, the, the Spirit of God stops that immediately through the death of those two uh, individuals. And so uh, what we spoke about last time, which was two weeks ago, it seems like Satan has this idea, if I can't kill the message, then I will kill the messengers. I can't stop these guys. They keep on preaching. I use the Sanhedrin. I try to use their own people. I can't stop the message. Okay, let me kill somebody. And if you want to go listen to that message, go look at that, which I think is very, a very powerful um, thought to understand how Satan and, and, and God work sort of in, in opposite corners but achieve different, uh, different goals. And we see that this is the way that uh, Satan operates. We see it in the book of Job where Satan says... To God, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. So if we want to keep Christians silent, let's threaten them with death. If we want to keep the church silent uh, in, the, in these early, early days, let's just kill Stephen quickly. Let's see what happens. And God permits this to happen. How did the plan work? Did it work? Well, we studied that two weeks ago. You can come at God with whatever you have. You can come with the forces of darkness And everything you lay against God, God is always one step ahead. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He can do anything. And so he just flips it around. And we read chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. And we saw what happened there. This is what happened. Twelve preachers turned into thousands of preachers overnight. Because the persecution led to the scattering of the Christians. And the text says that wherever they went in the world, they preached the gospel. And so the ordinary pew sitter became a preacher of the gospel. They went about euangelizio. They went to proclaim the gospel uh, message. So um, when Satan thought he's going to block this thing, God said, okay, you can try. It's just going to produce more preachers. Okay, And the message was being preached in the neighborhoods of Jerusalem. And you can try and block this in the neighborhoods, but guess what's going to happen? It's going to go to the nations. And that's what happened. And that's what the gospel was spread in Judea, Samaria, and everywhere else. Now, I gave you a quote um, at that time about a guy by the name of Steve Addison that that I met who's a missiologist. He said, every time the disciples settled, God unsettled them. God unsettles us so that we can grow. God unsettles us so that the, the word can go, so that the mission and can go out. And what we see in this story so beautifully is that when Satan persecutes, for Satan, this was persecution, and for the church, they experienced it like that, but God is actually using that to scatter. God wanted the church to scatter and people to go about and, and proclaim the, the message. And so I think there's, in in the the first four verses of Acts, I think there's a, there's a, not just that, I mean the whole book so far, if I could summarize the mission of the church, I would say it's, it's this way. Just four, four words. Well, it's actually six, sorry. Gather to worship, scatter to witness. That's our mission. We see the church in Jerusalem, they're all kumbaya, cuddly with each other. The church is growing, it's wonderful, oh, it's great to be a Christian. Stephen dies, Boom, what happens to the church? They separate, and they go into all the world, and they proclaim the message, and, and the kingdom spreads. Incredible. I think that's what the church is supposed to be. Yes, we have kumbaya when we get together Yeah, We have our time together. We uh, strengthen each other, and then from here we out, but we have to out and witness. So, ordinary pure sitters continue the spreading of the gospel, and now it seems like, so, so as these, these, these Christians, they spread out from Jerusalem, they're basically running away. But wherever they go, they preach the gospel, and now Luke zooms in on one particular individual, and he's preaching. And what happens to him? Because he goes to Samaria, and he's not an apostle, and he does some incredible things, and that is Philip. Okay. Everybody awake? Are you still here? Titus, you want to fall asleep? You better not. I'll elbow you. Let's go. Let's read the text. Acts chapter 8, verse 5 to 25. We'll, we'll just take section by section. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed So there was great joy in that city. What's going to happen tonight is, this is a long text we've got to deal with, and I don't want to elaborate too much on it, but I'm going to give some time. I've got some questions for you, and so I'd like you to hang in there with me, and we can discuss some of that. The first thing that I catch here is that Philip went down to Samaria. And we know, do I have to explain what happens in Samaria? Samaritans had nothing to do with Jews, right? So this was a, this was a zone that you didn't go into. And what, what came to my mind, what I thought about was John chapter 4, when Jesus also went through Samaria, right? And he met the woman at the well. And then he went into the town, Sychar. And there he spent time, him and his disciples, with these people. And many believed. I wonder if Philip went to the same town. I, I don't know. But what's interesting for me here is that the text says that the, the ordinary Christians, as they spread from Jerusalem, they went and they proclaimed the gospel. And the Greek word there is euangeletio. And yet here, that word proclaimed is associated with the word keruchma, which is basically um, <coughs> the keruch in the first century was the the representative of the king. And so he would go into the marketplace with a scroll, and he would get a little podium, pull out some type of drum, stand on the drum, and then say, hear ye, hear ye, all people of the kingdom. And he, would, and he would say, listen, this is what the king says. This is a new ordinance or a policy or a law or a, or a rule. And when, whenever you had the keruch, stand up and speak, you keep quiet because it's a message from the king. That's the word that is being used here. And so it seems like Philip is doing the thing that you and I dread to do, to stand on the street corners and preach. But that seems to be exactly what Philip is doing. He's filled with the Spirit of God, and he stands up in the middle of Samaria, and he starts proclaiming the the message. And as he's proclaiming the message, he gets opportunities to heal people that that are lame from birth. The text says that he's driving out evil spirits, and that he healed the paralyzed. And as he's doing this, the people are amazed at it. That he can do these things. What is interesting is that these signs, these miracles, well, the text says that they are signs. What is their purpose? Their purpose is to confirm the message that he is speaking. Uh, That's very important to remember throughout the, the rest of this lesson for tonight. So healing and miracles. Let me just ask you a question. Has anybody ever been in a church where they healed people? Anybody here ever seen a miracle? They told you it was, yes. All right. Okay, we're going to talk about that in, in a moment. Now, the text says in the Greek that when the people saw the signs, when they saw the miracles that Philip was performing, they paid very close attention to the message. That's the purpose of miracles that we read about in the Bible. It's to get people to zoom in on what the guy is saying. We see it clearly here in the text. The people with one accord took heed. It's literally what the Greek says. Wow, look at this guy. That guy can walk. I think we need to listen to what he he says. He just healed that guy. I think we need to turn our ear to what he is saying. And what I find interesting is that, look at that verse 7, for with shrieks impure spirits came out. If you look at the Greek, it sounds like the, the evil spirits were in agony. They were in agony. They were like, shouting and screaming because this message and the power of the what? The dunamis, the spirit of God was was causing havoc in their lives. Are you telling me to leave my home? So it's interesting that the evil spirits, they were shrieking and uncomfortable. And the people, how did they feel in that town? They had great joy. Ladies and gentlemen, when darkness and evil is removed from your life, Joy moves in. One of the ways that you know there's a spiritual problem is if joy is absent in your life. This is very important. The spiritual realm was under attack in Samaria. The Messiah sets free. Evil spirits put you in bondage and it robs you of joy. I had a conversation with somebody yesterday with a family member that stuck with somebody in their house. That is an evil person. Godless person and you can sense you can see how this person is deteriorating the other person is deteriorating through this um, this person that brings evil into the house we have to rid ourselves we got you can feel you can sense when joy is absent in somebody's life and then you know there's darkness and evil spirits involved there all right let's go on verse 9 and so here the other guy is introduced in the story old good Simon, 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 the sorcerer. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this for me is a shocking statement, this man is rightly called the great power of God <laughs> they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with sorcery you guys watch the magicians on tv have you ever seen these guys there's some really incredible guys that can do really incredible stuff there's a there's a there's a series out on netflix that i want to challenge you to go watch it's called uh messiah anybody watched it you need to go watch it it's really good. It's like a modern-day... I'll, I'll leave that to you, but go check it out. It's, it's actually pretty good. But it's a modern-day example of what it would, would have looked like if Jesus was born in our time and the, the battles that he goes through. Anyway, so what we have here is we've got a guy that's involved with uh, magic arts, sorcery. He's deceiving people. Um, he is maybe, uh, maybe similar to Janus and Jambres who... Um, in the days of Moses, could also uh, turn a stick into a snake. Maybe something similar to that. Now, there's an interesting word that's being used here, prosecho. And I'll explain to you what that means in a moment's time. But for a long time, the people gave heed. The people gave heed, paid attention to Simon as someone great. That's before the apostles came, Oh, before Philip came. And they thought, hey, this guy is great. We need to pay attention to him. That's what prosecho means. We're giving heed to this guy. Because surely the magic that he does tells us he's somebody great. And he has to be from God. They called him the Megas, interesting, Dunamis, Theos. Isn't that interesting? The same word for the power of the Spirit they attributed to this guy. And we know that he didn't do the magic by the power of the Spirit. But they thought that he did. That's what the people of the town thought. The mega power of God. Mega Micah. Mega power of God. In verses 5 to 8, the people are astounded, prosecho, about the miracles of Philip. Same word. Before Philip came, the people were astounded, prosecho about the miracles of Philip, about the magic of Simon. So what do we see here? We see here the battle of the spirits, in a sense. The battle of the spirits. And the crowds wonder, who is from God? Simon does magic and incredible things, and the people are astounded. Is he from God? But then Philip comes, and he does incredible signs and wonders. Is he from God? Who is operating in the the power of God? Well, let's read verse 12 and 13. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. I think... The power of God won the crowd towards Philip because they acted on what they saw. They believed and they were baptized. The miracle trumps magic. The power of God trumps the power of man. And what I find interesting here, for those of you who often have to get into debates with people about it's faith that saves you. Or it's baptism that saves you. What does the text say? You see this all over the Bible. You believe and you get baptized. They always go together. Faith and baptism are unified. Very simple. The people were astounded By the magic of Simon. That's what the text says in in, in Greek. And now, Simon is astounded by the power of the miracles of Philip. You know why Simon... Okay, can you imagine what Simon is thinking? Hey, all my life I've been tricking these people. And I've been pretty good at it. And people attribute it it, that I am part of the power of God. Or I'm doing this by the power of God. And now he sees somebody actually really doing it. And he's like... How do you do that, man? How do you get that done? That's incredible I don't know how to wrap my head around and I think it's I think it's driving him nuts. He's trying to figure out how does this guy he, he this guy can suddenly walk his whole life he couldn't walk you know he's done, doing research on the guy's past, trying to figure out this must be a lie. there must be a trick and then he realizes this is real It's definitely legit so I also see in the text that Simon took glory upon himself. And Philip does what? He gives glory to God. Simon had no message that accompanied his magic. But Philip had a message that accompanied his miracles. Verses 14 to 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers There, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So, what what do you think about that? They were baptized, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. How does that work? Can I be baptized and not receive the Holy Spirit? How do we make sense of this? I thought that you get it when you get baptized. How do we make sense of this? Who's got the answer? The Bible. Bible. (laughs) Thank you, my brother DeWilt. All right. Let me give you just a brief overview of cessationism. I don't know if you've ever heard of that word. Cessationism is basically what what we believe (coughs) to a certain extent. I think mostly... I think we'll all agree with this. We believe that the, the apostles who were there, walked with Jesus. They received a specific, unique set of gifts, what we call charismata, the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. It was imparted to the apostles, and the apostles could take this gift and impart that through the laying on of hands to other disciples of Christ. And they could speak in tongues, and they could do miracles and perform all kinds of wonders and miracles and signs. That's why we see here that they were called, the apostles, remember they were in Jerusalem, but Philip and those guys, they called them to come to Samaria, to come lay hands on him, so that these Christians also could have the charismatic gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so they could carry this power as well, so that they could be effective in the ministry that they've been called to do. However, when the last apostle died, the gift ceased. Because there was no longer any apostle that could hand over this gift to somebody else. And that is why we are not a charismatic church. Okay, But there's much to say about this. But this is one of the texts that sort of explains that. So when you get baptized, yes, you receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God seals you. You belong to God. You go into heaven. But if you want the charismatic ability, it seems when you look at this text, that comes through the laying on of the hands of the apostles. And unfortunately, they are dead. Nobody's 2,000 years old. So that's just a a, a side thing um, over there. Let's go on to verse um, 18. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money you retard, and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. What do you see there? Simon is observing now. He sees, he sees hey, hey, whoa, here's new guys coming. They seem to be more powerful than Philip. They touch this guy and he receives the Spirit. Well, how, how does that look? Well, they probably started speaking in tongues, different languages. Probably that's what happened. That's what we see in Acts chapter 2. Because there had to be a sign, a physical sign. They've just received the Spirit. Maybe there's a tongue of fire that came upon them. Maybe there's just wind and and stuff that happened. But clearly, Simon knew something weird. This is crazy. Heaven is here. This is big. This is huge. And so he says, okay, I also want some of that. Now, there's um, two things that I pick up about Simon. About his character. He was more interested first of all in popularity than people. The purpose of of the gifts was to spread the gospel message that brings salvation to people. But what did he want? He wanted to be known. He wanted to be powerful. He wanted to be popular. And the second thing is this. He was more interested in miracles than the message. He wanted to see people heal. He wanted to see the miraculous, the abnormal, the supernatural. That's what he wanted to see. He was not interested in having his heart changed. He was not interested in having his life changed. He was interested in magic and stuff. And this was the greatest magic he's ever seen because this is real. This, ladies and gentlemen, is classic contemporary Pentecostalism. If you don't know what Pentecostalism is, maybe uh, this will help. Happy Clappy. You've been to a happy, clappy church? And I don't want to criticize churches. I honestly don't want to. But this is a classic case of what's happening in many of those churches. They would say God is great because of the healing and the miracles. Oh, it is a great day filled with the Spirit today because 23 people spoke in tongues. And that lady that couldn't walk, she can walk now, although there's no um, validated cases of those. So, so they're saying God is great because of all the supernatural miracles they don't say God is great simply because of the cross. In actual fact, if the miracles aren't there, many people will just leave the church. If the speaking in tongues doesn't happen and there's nothing supernatural, they'll just leave. They hold on to the cross because of the supernatural. And the leaders of those churches, many times they emphasize the supernatural because I know that's what people want. And so they do that to keep the crowd in. And not always. I'm just generalizing here as I see it with with Simon. The more power I have, this is Simon, the more people will follow me. And the more I will have a following and the more I will stand out. And this is classic in the um, Pentecostal movement. I don't know how much you guys have seen of this. But the more you can speak in tongues in the Pentecostal movement, the more the Spirit of God is in you. And the more the people in the church respect you. Because you are at a different level, man. You can speak angelic languages. Hey, dude, I can only speak English. Hey, I can speak heaven's language. So if you, if, if you want, and you'll see it now in the text. So if you want to have access to heaven, let me pray for you. I can talk directly to God. You can't. So, so you're, a little bit, you're a little bit below me. Very sad. Simon wanted the power, not the Christ. Verses 20 to 23. Peter answered, "May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share of this ministry in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that He may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin." Simon's actions reveals his thought. And I want you to see this carefully. The apostle condemns Simon for a thought. A thought. Look at what the text says. You thought you could buy the gift of God with money, you thought that money could give you access to God's blessings. What a mundane way of thinking that is. And in verse 22, he says, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that He may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. That's as abstract as it can get. That's as real as it can get. That God requires of us to be genuine people. Now, we might not act on our thoughts, but still the thought can condemn us. That's how intense God is in being connected with our spirits and with our hearts. And so the apostle gives him judgment. He says, may your money perish with you. You are poisoned by bitterness and controlled by what is wrong and ungodly. That's what he says basically in the, in, in the Greek. And so Simon says to him, the classic. He says, okay, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Why would he pray that? Simon was, why would he say that? Simon was so spiritually bankrupt, he couldn't even pray himself. There's no relationship with God. Nothing. No faith. His relationship with God was non-existent. And we've, we then find the conclusion of the story, verse 25. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem Preaching the gospel in many many Samaritan villages. And so the mission just continues. Okay. Are you guys ready? We have like nine minutes. Here's a question. Was Simon saved after getting baptized? Easy. Easy, isn't it? Because... He believed, and he was baptized, and Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, right? So according to the text, he's saved, yet at the same time, we know what? He was spiritually bankrupt. He didn't have a relationship with God. We can see that through the words of the Apostles. And honestly, when I, when I read this, it made me sort of feel a little bit better. Because I've baptized people. And the next day he's drunk in the pub. And I'm like, for crying in a bucket, why'd you baptize that guy? I know what this feels like. Philip probably baptized this guy. He baptizes him. I'm so glad you believe. That's awesome. You're gonna be in heaven with me, and they pray, and it's like so excited. And the next day he says, hey, dude, can I give you some money? And I want this gift. And Philip's like, oh, I don't know. Who's got a definitive answer? Who can put their life on the line right now and give me the answer? Yes, he's saved. No, he's not saved. uh, Excuse me? No, he's not. Where's Yes, brother, the Molt. I'm say um uh, I'm sure Simon was very sincere when he came from all the others. Okay. But we That that could be. That could be. And, uh, so, yeah. I think was that, that I think said, I mean, Yeah. It is not not He was, not saved, he was throwing salvation. Away. I mean, you can yeah. you, you can be baptized and be saved and still be a mess we are we're not perfect we're making progress and that's exactly why we get baptized not because we are perfect but because we need Christ I'd like to give an answer Um, and it's not yes or no I and there's a reason why I thought about asking this question and I want to go with with what we said and and with what you say as well brother we don't know Simon's heart We don't know his intentions. We don't know his motivations. We only have the text that's in front of us. this The question is wrong. It's way beyond our pay grade. To know who God saves and who he doesn't. It's way beyond our pay grade. And the the troubling thing for me is, is that we ask this question many times about people. And it's not our place. Only God can answer this question accurately. Wouldn't you agree with that? Only God can answer this question accurately. We have to be very careful of assuming that everyone in the church is saved. And everyone outside the church is not. We've got to be careful. Before his own master he stands or falls, Paul writes to the Romans. Let's leave it to God. Let's leave salvation to God. Let's judge sin. The apostle was judging sin. He was judging his attitude and his thoughts. He said, man, you, you're trying to purchase God's charismata with money. Are you crazy? So, we can, and we have to, by the way, because many times people, with the Christians, we say, well, don't judge me. Do not judge or you'll be judged. Um, yes, we have to. If I see you committing adultery, I'm sorry, I'm going to maybe break your kneecap. But, because we have to. And you do the same to me because we have to. We've got to hold one another accountable. But I cannot make a judgment and say, well, you're not going to heaven, buddy. Who am I to say that? So that, that's the first thing. And, and then, very important, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3b to 4. The writer says, this salvation, which is the same salvation we read about in Acts, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to His will. Miracles and signs, and be, and the reason why I raise this is because there there are many Christians around who believe exactly the same things that happen in the Book of Acts happens today as well, and must happen today as well. And so it's important for us to be able to distinguish between us. We must remember, I don't care if God wants to do miracles today, He can do that. I don't have to stop Him. If He wants to do that, He can do that. But it's always done to confirm the message, it's about the message. Miracles are a means to an end, they are not an end in themselves. The goal isn't just to perform miracles. The goal is to confirm the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He died for the sins of the world, that He loves us incomprehensibly. The Holy Spirit decides. Look look at the last line there. The Holy Spirit decides who does miracles. I've had various debates with people. Look look at the last verse. And by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Who decides whether you and I can speak in tongues? The Holy Spirit does, right? I've had people say to me, "Yo, man, you know, Pentecostal preachers, they would say to me, hey man, you need to speak in tongues, otherwise you don't know God. I'm like, dude, I'm right here. I'm available right now. If the Holy Spirit wants me to speak in tongues, He can do it right now. If He wants me to heal somebody, He can do it right now. Do you think the apostles in Acts chapter 2, they were waiting for the language? They were not waiting for the language. They didn't even know what was going to happen. And I I confess in front of everybody, and I hope that you are prepared as well. If you are open for the Holy Spirit to do with you what He wants to do, I'm sure. Do you agree that you'll just go with it? Of course we would. But one thing that I'm sure I'm not going to do is I'm not going to go fake. I'm not going to do that. Because then I'm making something that is not of the Holy Spirit. So this is very, very important. When the Holy Spirit wants to do something, you don't have to beg for it. You don't have to buy it. And you don't have to try and make it happen. If God wants to do something through you, He will do it. Few thoughts. The cost to obtain the gifts of God is a contrite heart. God has treasures and gifts and blessings for us. They are free. You don't need money to buy them. All we need is an open and an honest heart. That's all. That was what Simon's problem was. He had a heart issue. And, and I can imagine from Philip's perspective and from the apostles, they like, dude, you, you, God could have just used you. The Holy Spirit could work in you to change thousands of people's lives. But you wanted this gift for the wrong reasons, and you thought you could buy it. You could have had it for free, man. You could have kept your money. You could have had it for free. And he was probably a wealthy guy. There's a difference between magic and miracles. I think we know that. Miracles has an end goal and it's from heaven. And it comes with a message. And it's beyond doubt. Simon was won over by the miracles, not the message. In my estimation. It brings us to the last question. Why did Luke record the story? Now we know that Luke Decided what to put in and what not to put in when he wrote to Theophilus. He wanted to explain to Theophilus how this Christian movement moved throughout the world and what its intentions were. And here's just a few things that I think why Luke recorded specifically the case of Simon. I, th- I think Luke was trying to show the heart of the Christian movement, he's illustrating its integrity. Because can you imagine in the first century, you hear about this movement. These apostles go everywhere. They spread this message about a guy who died on a cross. And they do all these miracles. Oh, we've heard of guys who do magic. I mean, Simon is one of those guys. The reason why these guys went around and spread this story and did these magic tricks was for money. You can imagine that's what's happening in the first century world. Luke writes this to say that's not the case. These apostles, they were poor, and they did nothing for money. They did it because they preached a message that changed people's lives. That was the intention. That was the purpose. That was the heart. That was the integrity of the first century church. It was all about God and His Son's cross. The story also illustrates the power of the Holy Spirit and how it triumphed over evil, sorcery, and magic. The power of God, the dunamis, It shows how the gospel can powerfully penetrate the most spiritually challenging places.